Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. I would say that our society is being pushed beyond what has been its normal limits, at least in the United States, as we watch our Constitution be incredibly in jeopardy by a whole lot of horrible decisions and comments being made from what I call the non-POTUS. But we are facing the COVID-19 isolation coming to a slow end to see whether or not we're going to have more difficulties with those sorts of things coming back to attack the human race. Hopefully, we have made progress in that regard. The word hopefully keeps coming in my mind. Hopefully, hopefully. And I think the biggest hope that I have right now is perhaps we are going to make some progression, some evolution in the racial tensions or the racially related cruelties or the racially inspired violence because we have had millions and millions and millions of protesters, peaceful protesters, and maybe not so peaceful protesters saying that this must come to an end, that these racial moments that are inspired by racism and cruelty and treating people like they're secondary citizens or not citizens or all must simply come to an end. We had a dialogue with Mr. Eden Warner last week, and we want to make an even clearer dialogue. It's been seven days since we last spoke, and so much has happened in our world, and my consciousness has risen as well. And I just want to introduce the topic that the, the life that we're living in today, because As I open up the LA Times this morning, I discover this kind of odd civil rights groups get big corporate bucks article in the LA Times with a list of millions of dollars going toward different sorts of societies or organizations that are all intended to stop racial uh, cruelty, to stop racial, racially inspired violence. And it's just it's amazing. Amazon, Facebook, Google, Spotify, Walmart. You have people giving up their jobs because they've made a slip. We have other people disassociating themselves because an individual has been insensitive. And it, it, it's like happening fast. And it happened fast in the now 14th day of protest since the very horrible murder of Mr. George Floyd. But In light of all of these shifts that seem to be coming to play, we really need to listen and learn because our consciousness has to continue to expand in sensitivity. And I don't know about you, listener, but for me, I get confused as to what's considered a microaggression when my heart feels like it's in the right spot. I don't know about you, listener, but once upon a time, I was taught that the best way to approach racial tension was to be colorblind, and that was the training from Martin Luther King days when I immersed myself in civil rights at that time, but that's not necessarily a mindset that was really going to work, I'm understanding. Once upon a time, I thought unity was the way to go, and yet, as Mr. Eden 
Warner informed me last week, we need to reconsider even that perspective. So I am asking you to think outside your box, put aside your preconceptions, and listen and learn. If you are of light color or white color skin, listen and learn to individuals individually and collectively that need to teach us how we can make our society better. And in order to affect that, I have invited again Eden Warner, Mr. Eden Warner. I think I begged him before. This time I just invited and he said, (laughs) I think we're more of a team this week. Well, Eden, you've listened to my introduction. Welcome to the program. I hope you're doing well. How do you want to start us off in this conversation seven days after our previous? Well, hello, Carol. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me again. Um, You know, uh, Certainly, things continue to evolve. Um, I will say that I'm seven days more hopeful than I was the last time I talked to you Ah. uh, because um, some real change has happened. Uh, When you hear that the Minnesota Minnesota has outlawed outlawed chokeholds, something that we did in California a while ago, and that Mm -hmm. other people are considering it, just that simple thing, which should seem like it should have been something done after the Eric Garner case in New York many, many years ago, um, mm-hmm. just to see that finally happening is progress. Um, it, it does, it's not the deep sea, the kind of progress you, or something really huge, but in the short period of time to see that happen makes me feel good because it's translating what has been people standing up and protesting into something that's real. And that's what you always worry about. You worry that people voice their concerns, voice their um, anger, their rage, uh, their fears, and then it doesn't translate to something real. And so the fact that this is more than just the four officers or, or yeah, the four officers being convi- uh, uh, now being indicted for something, it's something bigger than that because we know they are just the tip of the iceberg of what's been mm-hmm. going on. That's why I'm seven days more hopeful than I was the last time I spoke with you. I don't know if you heard about this, but not only has that happened, but the mayor of that fine city has uh, the city council disbanded the police police department. Yes, I heard that. In hopes of community law enforcement, the mayor was not in favor of it. It's Mm kind of like, oh, what does that look like? What does that even mean? Is that hope or is that? I don't know what that means, actually. And I don't know if that's the direction you want to take us in. We're going to be seeing a lot of good and bad transformation. Uh, What's your hope for the next seven days or the next 70 days? Well, I don't have any. Well, my hope for the next seven days is the same thing I said before, which is I started this by saying it's nice to see movement. But, uh, and I, I heard Gavin Newsom say this about, I think it was last week, and I, I thought it was great that he said it. There's no legislation or policy that's going to change racism. Mm-hmm. It, it can make the effect of racism less, but it won't change racism. The only thing that will change racism is a change in hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And so the change of hearts and minds, these initial things are some might be good, some might not be bad. I mean, might be bad. And, and the bad ones end up being the more troubling things that can happen because the whole goal is to continue down a path, to me, of changing hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And that takes 
that takes seeping time. That takes people investing time. And when I say people, I mean white people. Investing time in really understanding what is the history that's going on in the United States, what are these particular, the particulars behind these cases from a viewpoint of being the impressed, oppressed, and talking to black people about what their experiences have been. That mm-hmm. takes time. That can't happen instantly. And as someone, I've had different ranges of people who have approached me. I've had some white friends that have just said, how are you doing? I've had some mm-hmm. white friends that said, um, you know, I need to do more. And I've had some white friends that said, okay, tell me where I need to put my money today. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and they all have heard the same thing, which is mm-hmm. if you're serious, start spending time really understanding the history of racism and the plight of black people in the United States. Truly spend time doing that. And that's your starting point. And that is not something you can do in a day. You can't do it in a week. It will take time. And if you have kids, especially, they need to be involved in that at whatever level is appropriate for their age, but they need to be, it should be a family commitment to learning what has taken place. And I have an example of that, which I can okay. give you when, when the time is right. Go for it, please. The okay. time is oh, right. <laughs> I, I remember having a conversation before this all happened with a friend of mine who's white. And he's a really good friend of mine. And I mentioned something about lynching. And mm-hmm. his response was what the typical white person's response is, that lynching is this thing that happened in the past in the South by vigilantes who would go grab a black person out their home and go lynch them out on the tree. Hmm. And I, I explained to him, no, this is the reason why people like you need to know the real history of what's going on in this country, because that's the narrative that has played out so that even many black people who don't know better think that's what the, the legacy of lynching is. But in reality, lynching was a, uh, was terrorism on a state level, not on, on a government level, not on just on the vigilante level. Lynchings, they would, they would send out uh, a, a newspaper. There'll be a newspaper announcement that on, on Saturday or on Sunday, they'll be lynching X, Y, and Z for these, far, these crimes. And people would dress up in their Sunday best and go to the town square to watch this person be lynched. And crowds could be as big as 15,000 people to watch this event of a lynching. People, there's, there's, there's data of people sending postcards to friends about, I went to this great lynching yesterday, and, uh, and details about it. And the other piece of it was that a predominant amount of these lynchings included burning the body. So people would dress up their whole family, little kids included, in their Sunday best, go to the town square, to watch this black man usually hung and burned for the entire town. Mm. That is a much different understanding of lynching than that the, a Ku Klux Klan group grabbed somebody out of their house and took them out and lynched them on a tree in the backyard. That second one is a vigilante approach that makes most white people go, well, I'm not one of them. I didn't do that. Those are the fringe, back to that word, those are the fringe people that went out and and did this kind of of, of violence against people. But when you understand that it was state-sponsored lynching, that it was a a viewing event, 
a public event, then you have a much different view of lynching as a white person than you felt before. Hmm. And, and, and both are just awful. I mean, absolutely right. awful. Well, well, and, yeah. and, and did we even just have some debate, oddly enough, on the Senate floor about lynching this last week? Yeah. Exactly. Oh my gosh! I thought, I thought the timing of that was very interesting. <sighs> that we were having, you know, Rand Paul blocking it because he thought it was too broad, or whatever issues he had around an anti-lynching bill. <laughs> I, unbelievable, right? Just unbelievable. Right. Right. And still, right. this week, in the middle of all of this, mm-hmm. Rand Paul's going to oppose that, yeah. knowingly, right. boldly. Uh, mm-hmm. Trump is going to knowingly and boldly tell the police force they're being wimpy. I mean, it's just, yeah. shall we continue with the absolute appalling, which, which brings me to what I mentioned the last time we talked, which is mm-hmm. white people have the privilege or the ease of being horrified. Whereas mm-hmm. black people are, well, Finish the sentence for me, Eden. <laughs> well, black people certainly aren't horrified. I mean, they feel distress and they feel pain and agony when they look at George Floyd and watch the whole video and hear what he's saying. Of course, you feel incredibly horrible. But I would not, I would not call, I would say our, our feeling is more, there goes another one. Mm-hmm. There, there's another one of us taken by the brutality of the state. And maybe this time there'll be a little bit more um, uh, outrage uh, from, from white people. But at the end of the day, they won't fundamentally see there needs to be a change. That's, that's kind of the, the, the sanguine view that many black folks has, have said when they, when they saw this from the beginning. And especially from the beginning when none of the officers were charged. That it, it told you everything there, that it was mm-hmm. just another case. You know, Arbery could be shot by two, two civilians and no one get charged. Now everyone's watching it live, you know, pretty close to right after it happened on, on, on TV, and they still are not charged. Mm-hmm. And so it, you, you, you have people running into the streets then to want to protest, but it's that feeling that nothing's going to happen because history has shown the same thing. Even if police officers are charged, they are never found guilty. Of course, there's a caveat, because I found out in the midst of this that there was a black officer who was arrested in Minnesota, and he was found guilty. But in all of these famous cases involving white police officers and, and brutality towards black, mainly men, no one has ever been found guilty. Few have been charged, and no one's found guilty. So if you're a black person and you're looking at that, you know, what do you walk away with? And I, I want to actually put something on to this, because this is one of my enlightenments over the last okay. seven days. All right. I was one of those people who would say, you know, thank God the protests are, are peaceful because, you know, the looting and all that stuff, that doesn't help anything. And I, 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 I've, I've gotten a clearer view on that for me. And, 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 you know, listen, I, I, I'll quote that. I saw something on Trevor Noah that put it in the perfect perspective because that thought process is around the idea of breaking in a store by our society is wrong, right? It's 
breaking in, you're destroying public property, I mean, private property, and you're taking things, which is stealing. That's not part of what our society says is right. It's breaking mm-hmm. the contract. This is using mm-hmm. his words, breaking the contract. But when you stop and go, what part of the contract is society upholding towards black people? It's society and the state and police holding up their side of the contract, which says if someone is killed that looks like me, who's innocent or killed by the state, that they will have the same punishment as someone like me committing the crime. Because if you want to say that society has these rules and norms, the norms can't be you, the oppressed, have all these things that you need to follow, but we, the power, we pick and choose what we want to do. Sign this contract, please, (laughs) and then continue on. But that's the problem. The problem is the contract is broken. It's not real. And so for people, and I mean white people, to look at people looting and go, look at the disgraceful behavior. Look how they're behaving. That, that's not what our society is about. And not understand that those same people are living in a system where they're part of the contract. What they should be receiving is not happening at all. And I'm not talking about social programs and all that kind of stuff that people normally go to. I'm talking about really fundamental things that their life is sacrosanct. Their life is as sacrosanct as anyone else's life. That should be a pretty basic societal rule. And if the answer to that is no, it's not, then please tell me why those same people should be abiding by societal rules for anything else. And it's, it's not advocating it, but you need to at least as a society take a gut check and go, but what else should we expect? We should be actually thankful that they're not doing this all the time. Because what they're receiving would say, well, this society doesn't, the rules that this society says are not really meant to be rules. It's only the rules when it's against us, but it's not the rules when it's in our favor. You know, just do whatever you want to do. Thank God that is not the mindset of most people. But it should be, white people should stop and think and say, you know, wow, they really are tolerant. They, they, mm. they really are taking a lot and still trying to play by our rules, even though we don't play by our rules. Mm. I'm just listening so closely to what you're saying. And, and I look at those looters who are doing it for protest reasons different than those looters that are doing it because the opportunity and the greed and the, the chance to do so is there. And, and you know, it's this, this ability to measure the heart and the intentionality may be relevant to really understanding uh, protest by violence or protest by looting uh, versus just opportunistic anarchy or opportunistic thievery. I, I mean, or, or destruction. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. I, I think we have well, to kind of I, keep that distinction. No, uh, that's my point. That's part of my evolution. Uh, I think that the need for that, distinction is almost irrelevant. I get why people want to say it. It's a nice, neat box to have, right? If you're protesting for something bad that's happening and that's the reason why you're doing this, well, who's going to be, people aren't, they might not like it, but at least you get it. If someone is just stealing to steal, well, that's bad. And what I'm saying is a more fundamental thing. My fundamental statement is if you, if you violate the contract of a society for people, 
you should be understanding of anyone who violates it back. Anyone. No matter what their intentions are, their intentions are irrelevant. They're living in a society where they see this contract not being upheld. So why would you as a society assume that they will do the right thing? It, that's the problem I'm talking about. That, mm-hmm. that, that, that while I would certainly don't, I'm not going to be out there looting. I'm not going to be doing it, participating in it. I think, though, that, that power should stop and understand, yes, we need to stop it because it's people's property and we need to protect their property. But we can't sit here and go, I'm so shocked that they would behave that way. No, mm-hmm. shouldn't be shocked. You should be shocked that they're not behaving like that most of the time. That's what you should be shocked. Never mind you then layer on top of that that many of these people are out of work. They don't have jobs. When you layer that on top of it, the fact that you don't have this going on constantly is what you should be shocked about. And that's what I mean. I mean, this is the level of understanding. Understand the level of the violation of the contract. We're not talking about um, taxation without representation. We're not talking about um, voting rights. We're talking about life itself. We're talking about the contract that says the state will not take a person's life for no reason. The state will not sanction the state taking a person's life without repercussion. That basic, there could be no more basic thing that you should expect. Right? You should expect within a society that I won't lose my life under the, 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 the drapery of, the, of, of the, the controllers of the society for no reason. And if you don't do that, if you violate that contract, what contract is more sacrosanct than that? Why would you expect better behavior from the average citizen than the state itself? Very potent and very different than our discussion on Monday. Cause, yeah. And I did listen to Trevor Noah's, because uh, uh, I listen to him every night. It, I did listen to his presentation about the contracts. What are the contracts? And did ponder this thought. And you have stepped into this much deeper than last week. Is the shift because... We can no longer allow any one person to not embrace a position of power. Uh, that each person, if they live within a contract, must must know that there is power in that contract. And if their power is taken away from them within that contract, then they have to have power somewhere, exercise yeah. power somewhere. Because then otherwise they become threatened and oppressed and belittled and stepped upon and exploited because they're desperately trying to live by the constructs of the, of the, the, the restricting contract and yet are chokehold held by that contract uh, into their position of powerlessness. So are it, we really it, it, talking about inequality of power? Well, it certainly is. An, an, but you're always going to have an inequality of power in some way. It's always going to exist. The, the problem is, is when those in power don't have enough compassion, forget empathy, but don't have enough compassion to recognize with that 
power, there is responsibility. You know, it's the old Spider-Man thing. You know, with great power, it mm. comes great responsibility. That there is responsibility it is not, power does not give you the ability to step over the rules that you have created. And if you do that, then you should be ready for whatever the people without power decide to do. That, that's my only point. My only point is you have created, once you do that, you've created a world by which there's no way you have any moral ground to stand on and say that that particular behavior is wrong because our society says it's wrong. After you've taken an innocent person's life, a person's life who should not be taken, what moral ground do you have to say that this other person should follow the norms of society? Now, like I said, you don't want anarchy. You don't want people burning down and looting and doing everything else. It's crazy. That's not what the point is because power, the state, is still going to clamp down on it, and there's no person running around, me included, saying they shouldn't. I'm saying that white people should not be outraged by the loot. Hmm. That's my point. My point is not that it shouldn't be stopped, that, that, that police should do what they're supposed to do to stop the looting and all that. All that stuff, because you still need to have order. I get that. But I'm saying that you should be, as a white person, you should be able to get to the evolution in this process of being able to see it and go. I get it. I get it, but I get it. Yeah. I get it. If you can't still do that, because I can, I, I can, I can look at it and I can go, I, I, I don't like it, but I get it. As mm-hmm. I talked to you, I talked to you the last time. I said, I said, and it, it was funny because after I talked to you, one of the three happened the next night. I said the media loves three things. Mm-hmm. They love, they love fires. Mm-hmm. They love, they love looting, and they love car chases. Those, those the media can't get enough of. I mean, mm-hmm. they, will in, they will interrupt anything. They probably interrupt the Super Bowl for one of those things. Mm-hmm. So they, they can't get enough of it. And so when you have protests, especially the first week of protests, that included an element, a large element of looting, you were guaranteed what was going to happen. That at the minimum, you, at the minimum, you would see a split screen with protesters on one side and and the violence on the other side, either fires or looting, and I shouldn't call looting violence, I'd say the looting or the violence on the other side, or on the worst case, you only see the fires. and looting. Because mm. covering a peaceful protest when that's going on at the same time is boring. Mm. It does not fit what media thinks people want to see. Mm. And so what I laughed at is the next night there was a car chase, and sure enough, oh. it interrupted the coverage of the protest to show a car chase. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I went, oh and I went, I went, there you go. And oh. the nights, not this past weekend, but the weekend before when there was, you know, lots of looting and, and, and the curfews went in place and everything else. During that time, they showed the same scene from mm. REI in Santa Monica over and over and over and over again. And then I looked on mm-hmm. the national next day and they showed that same scene again and it's over and over and over again they kept showing that mm. thing running out of the exact same store and I'm going if it's widespread looting which is what you're reporting why are you only showing one store mm. it's, widespread, it's widespread you should be able to show many different places not just one mm. and, 
and, and I said it's because that was a B-roll that was being circulated around the news, and they didn't care if they showed it 50 million times. And I made this point last time we spoke. The only thing that tells you that those moments are not happening then is when they're showing it at 10 o'clock at night, and you realize it's daytime, and you're going, when did this really happen? Because they don't have in the bottom corner somewhere that says earlier, right? And they're showing on the split screen. And if you don't know better, you think that's going on right then. And they're showing it all day long. And then finally, if it's nighttime, you can stop and go, oh, you know what? This isn't even happening now. But if it wasn't for that, you would think it was going on all day long, that there's looting going on all day long. And that was at the height of it. The only reason that it's gotten to where it is now is because that's almost, you know that when you're not seeing looting, there's none going on. Because that's why I crack up. When I look on the news and they go, well, it looks like the looting has died down. I go, no, it hasn't died down. It's completely stopped. Because if there was any camera on any looting, it would still be on TV. I don't care if it was 0.1% of the activity going on, it would still be on TV. So when it finally stopped showing it, you knew for a fact that there was none. That's when you knew there was none. Because they would show it over and over again. And it's not just our news. I'll, I'll give you another quick example. I remember, and it's really a different example, um, when, when Mandela died and the power um, uh, rift happened between the ANC and Encada in South Africa and all the violence started. Um, there, I spoke to a gentleman after this had been going on for weeks and weeks about the, the, the violence, and he talked about this one burning car that was shown for two weeks on CNN. Hmm. Every time they talked about the violence, they would show that same burning car. Now, if you're sitting here in the U.S., you don't know. You think it's another burning car. But it was the exact same burning car showed on, shown on the news all around the world for two weeks. And every day was represented as an example of the violence that was going on that day. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I mean by the way the media plays it. And so mm-hmm. uh, I have to give so much credit to people. I, I mean, mm-hmm. It, it tells you the, the power of this moment because mm-hmm. people have really gone way outside of what I would think are expectations to keep this as peaceful as it could ever be. Mm-hmm. Because even in the midst of what's because okay, so now I tell you about my, that seven days more hopeful, but I also am more hopeful because of the damaging things I've seen in the seven days. So we've mm-hmm. talked about the positive. The damaging things is to see how still police officers are behaving within the context of all that's going on. Mm-hmm. In the context of all of this, you would think police officers would be walking on eggshell mm-hmm. in terms of how they interact. And you know, they show some people kneeling and each police chief that's walking with the protesters and all that stuff. But in the midst of it all, when you watch what happened in front of the White House, when you watch mm-hmm. what happened to the gentleman in Buffalo, when you, 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 and there's multiple other slights they've shown. A, a, a police officer walking in New York and he shoves a woman to the ground. All these things you stop and go, no, this is something that's truly a problem in the police department. It truly is. And if you're going to fix this problem, you need to deal with that issue completely. Because if a white officer can push down a white 75-year-old man who's the only person there, not, you can't even hide it in the midst of, well, I was just moving the crowd. He's an individual standing there. If they could do that to a white person there, what do you think they could still do to black people? 
Well, yeah, especially when there were like, what, 58 officers in that exact right. same parade exactly. of police officer. And these were right. the front right. two. Of course, right. I do have to credit that, that what was it, 50, I, a certain number, 56 of the officers completely withdrew from having any part of that uh, workforce effort immediately. They, they, oh, but they for the wrong reason. Well, I don't, I don't know that to be true because what I did read was mm-hmm. is that they said that they would have nothing to do with that type of treatment, that they were completely appalled at, at what those two officers had done. Yet, they did walk past the man with the bleeding head. If, but, you know, to what degree, though, Eden, do we even really know if that situation, which I was appalled at, and I, I don't even have television, and I saw it over and over mm-hmm. and over again, mm-hmm. you know, to what degree was that? the burning car egregious and awful mm-hmm. and horrible mm-hmm. and to a white man your point well taken but to what degree was that the one burning car that i've seen over and over again and how many times have i heard about the marches where the police officers and the marchers are and the protesters are marching together or they are well, together in that regard or the police department like the 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 head of the chief in houston went on a very big mm-hmm. plea uh-huh to make mm-hmm. sure that this, this cannot happen in any police department. God knows that Houston's had its troubles. And so, you know, there, there seems to me like there's a lot of people on the other side of the burning car that I also want to give credence to. And here's the deal. We are in an Internet news-worthy situation where sensationalism is still very big. And yet, because of the pervasiveness of accessibility and information, we may not always have authentic representation or even proportional representation, but it is because this has been able to be so broad-based expressed because George Floyd's murder was, was viewed by billions across this planet, we now have protest. So the media responsibility to be authenticated is keen, but that one situation inflates and, and and helps us all to be able to see this cannot be tolerated. If it were one person, it shouldn't be tolerated. If it's many mm-hmm. thousands of people, it shouldn't be tolerated. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I've, I, I'm, I'm understanding that the energy of this conversation is so different than last week when we had a little bit more caution and diplomacy as opposed to the fury of our passions. Eden, is that a good thing? <laughs> well, I, I don't know the theory of our passion. I, I, would, I wouldn't call it that. Um, it, for example, when you were about, you know, the burning being the police officers pushing the man down, I, the, the reason why we're here is because the, there is a massive wall that's built up around police officers. Mm-hmm. They are heroes. They are public servants. They are selfless. There's a massive wall. You mm-hmm. can't pierce years and years of trying to pierce through that wall to show, especially white America, that it's not what you think doesn't mean that you have to. And this is the problem. Every time this conversation happens, people go, well, most officers are great. Well, I don't care about most officers. Mm-hmm. I care about one I might run into who kills me. Yeah. So I don't that most are good. I don't even care if 99 are good and one are bad. If I run into the wood, the one, I might die. So yeah. 
so so because there's this massive wall that 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 shields police officers, I don't have the same concern about showing the buffalo thing a million times because it will take that to start to mm-hmm. drill through the wall. It will. It, mm-hmm. There's no way it wouldn't. I'm not discounting all the people that are kneeling and marching with them and everything else, but that fits the narrative already. You're not trying to disrupt anything. That already mm-hmm. fits the narrative that they're public servants and everything else, that white people have mm-hmm. their lives. It's not part of black people's lives, unless it's a very small segment. I didn't have to, and I told you this before, I didn't have to explain to my kids why was that officer killing that man. I bet a bunch mm-hmm. of white people had to explain that to their kids. He's like, he's mm-hmm. an officer. He's not supposed to do things like that. Only thing my kids would want to know is why is that white man killing that black man? Hmm. They didn't have to get over this hurdle of, oh my goodness, I was just an officer. And... Hmm. and and explain again why not. Oh, I think I've lost your I've lost your microphone. Uh, okay, so Ian, I can't hear you at this particular moment, and we do so want to understand what it is you've been saying to your children that gives them an understanding of how they need to be cautious because of that one, and I'm sure there's more than 1% of officers that would threaten a black life, but that was generous of you to say, uh, but point well made. When your speaker comes back, just uh, your microphone comes back, just let me know and we will, we will go from there. It, it, folks, this is a this is an important time to actually listen. And one of the things that Eden Warner told me in our last program was, ask your African American friends how they're feeling about what's going on. Ask, and then listen, and listen, and listen. And while Eden and I are having a dialogue, I do have to say that in part I'm dialoguing because I want to listen more carefully as opposed to be persuading Eden. We need to understand points of view and we need to understand what we can do that would advocate for a point of view that is in line with humane, kind, respectful verve. That's going to help the society move a lot farther along. On the front page of the LA Times yesterday, it was about how do you sign Black Lives Matter and the beautiful language of sign language translates Black Lives Matters into Black Cherish Life. I want to ask Eden when he comes back how Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter becomes a really complicated comparison that white people often don't understand. Um, that first Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter must be understood in order to be, um, in order to really be, I'm looking at the at the switchboard here to see if Eden's back. In order to actually really be able to uh, uh, move into all lives mattering, Eden, are you back on? Yes, I am. Oh, well, wonderful! Welcome back. Okay. Were you able to listen yeah. to what I was saying about this? I just heard the back part about black Black Lives Matter and all lives yeah. matter. That's the part I heard. Yeah, I'd like to kind of dive into this because I think that white people don't quite understand this. Why isn't it okay to say all lives matter? Why is that considered a microaggression? Why is unity conscious and color blindness not really going to shift us forward in this era? Can you give us perspective on that? I know this is your perspective. 
And I want to mm-hmm. be respected that you yeah. are a, mm-hmm. a, a father. Give us a little bit of your background. You give us that last uh, week. And, and maybe that will help us understand both also some of your uh, perspective that will be relevant, which is very different than individuals who are jobless, exposed to COVID-19, sick, in essential jobs that are exposing them disproportionately to white people. Uh, you know, it's, it's like we all have our perspective. We all have our life. We all have our, our circumstances, which keep us blind and keep mm-hmm. us unaware. And we just think our perspective is the cat's meow, and it isn't. Okay, so Eve, walk us into your perspective and then help us understand these, these statements that get confusing. Right. So I'm, I'm 56 years old. I have two children, one's 16, one's 11. They're both in private school and PV. Um, I'm married, and my mother, of, who's almost 90 years old, lives with us as well for the past two years. Um, mm-hmm. My background is, is the typical path that, that the American dream or the American system says is good, right? I, I, I went to a top college in undergraduate, came out here as an engineer, um, then went back to business school locally, uh, came out as a finance person, have worked at large Fortune 50 companies, were, started as a, uh, a member of uh, the startup team at Fandango, the movie ticket uh, company, uh, started another company, and now I'm in the beginning stages of starting a third company. Hmm. And so I, I live in the world where, yes, I can do my business, even though it's not the greatest of ways to do it. I can still do it on Zoom. I might pay mm-hmm. not depend on having to face people and be exposed to people. Uh, I, I'm raising money for my, my last venture, so that's hard in this environment. But still, compared to most people's issues, that's very small. So it's with, mm-hmm. that, with that backdrop that I, I look at all of this. And, and, and the first place I would take it from what you were just saying is I have a 16, the older one, 16 year old, is, is a boy. So I have a 16-year-old son. And um, starting when he was around 10 and 11, I started having the conversation about dealing with police officers and, and make sure that you understand it's, com- it's specifically this talk that they talk about a lot nowadays. It's become like part of the, the general parlance to talk about the talk um, that, about mm. surviving encounters with police. Mm. It was right around the time after Trayvon Martin and after Eric Gardner, when we had this conversation mm. and, and it's been every year because it's always an event mm-hmm. to keep reminding him that mm-hmm. if you and one of your white friends are in the bubble of your school, yes, fine. But leave the bubble of your school. And at that time, when I first started having that conversation, he went to school in Koreatown. And so it was really stark. Once he left the bubble of his school, if he went two blocks from his school, he's at the corner of Wilshire and Western. So he's mm-hmm. in the middle. He's in the midst of it. And I, I said, if something happens, even if the two of you are dressed in your school uniform, if something happens when you're in that intersection and the police show up, you are a very different person than your friend Jack. Wow. And your number one goal is to get home. You're not looking for fairness. You're not looking for justice. You're not looking for what's right and what's wrong. All of those things go out the window because you have to get home safely. Mm. 
And if you if you approach that encounter like you approach everything when you're within the safety bubble, where you talk about something not being right and you want to be heard, there's a chance you might not make it home. Mm-hmm. That is what folks need to understand when they start talking about back black lives matter and all lives matter and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to extrapolate it to another very, which we might get into more detail, but I'll extrapolate it to a very heartfelt thing we discussed before when I talked about my mom. And I talked about the fact that she has dementia and she, the first time she saw George Floyd dying on the screen, she mm-hmm. thought it was me. Mm-hmm. And she got hysterical and she started screaming for me and I ran out and as she was looking at me, all of a sudden she calmed down and realized, oh, I thought that was you. Ah, the, gosh. Most people hear that. I, 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 the first time I shared that with someone, I went, enough said, and I thought it was clear, but it wasn't really clear because most people focused on the terror she felt before she realized it was me. Mm. I don't focus on that at all because, quite frankly, that's a victory because without me saying a word to her, she was able to quickly in the midst of terror, figure out, oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. You're right here, and everything is fine. So it didn't bother me she had that terror because tomorrow she's not going to remember that terror. And the more important thing is she was able to quickly realize that wasn't me. That's a positive. Hmm. The more salient point that I wanted to get across is no white mother, I don't care how much Alzheimer's they have or dementia, is going to look at that screen and think that's their son. Hmm. That's what people need to understand. Hmm. There's no way they could ever see that as their son. Hmm. There are lots of black parents that can see, even if their faculties were 100%, they could still see that being their brother or their uncle hmm. or their son or their father. And that's why Black Lives Matter is important. Because what, what was not translated clearly before, but I think people finally get it now, Black Lives Matter was not saying no one, that, that black people shouldn't be killed and who cares about other people being killed. Black Lives Matter meant that power, the police needed to understand that black lives matter. That is specifically talking about the state killing black, mainly men, with no regard. That's what Black Lives Matter meant. And that's why I give those examples. I give those examples because I want white people to understand clearly that now I think you get it. That what people have been complaining about is not the fact that black people die. It's not, it's, it's not that. It's about that at the hands of police officers, black people die and get hurt and get maimed and get injured. That is the thing that people can only accept when they delve in and get real about what's been taking place. When they strip down the hero worship of of police officers, strip it all the way down and recognize it's tough enough to say that one person is a hero. Because you don't know everything about that person. They might go home and beat their wife. You don't know. And yet you're calling them a hero because of something you saw. So that's tough enough. 
How tough is it when you call an entire profession heroes? Then you know for a fact you've got to be wrong because there's no way every single person in that profession is a hero. Some of them are far from being heroes. And mm-hmm. the, question, the question is, when will you stop as a society and say, racism is a problem, a long-term problem. It's going to take a ton of work. It will take a ton of work. And I don't really even, if I look at that alone, I am much more um, sanguine about the whole thing. Mm. When I look at the problem of police brutality towards black people, that is solvable. And when police, when the police, now the value that comes from the defunding discussion and what the city council says in Minneapolis mm-hmm. is while I don't necessarily see that as helpful, I'm willing to say I can look at that and tell you what is helpful from it. What is helpful is when all the other police chiefs look at that and go, oh, my goodness, if we don't start to get really serious of getting mm-hmm. bad apples mm-hmm. out of the police department, this is what's going to happen because they will understand, even if it doesn't happen this time, if another George Floyd happens, Forget it. All bets are off of police mm-hmm. policing existing the way it exists today. Mm-hmm. So the, while I might not be a massive advocate of the defunding of the police and community policing and all this stuff, I say the fact that some major city says they're going to do it is great. It's mm-hmm. fantastic because it is the final wake-up call that these that chiefs and and, and supervisors in police departments have to do their job. 30 years ago, they were told that, mm-hmm. and they didn't do it. For 30 years, they haven't done it. Now, they, they, they might, I can't say they were told that before that, but I know for a fact, almost 30 years ago, at, when the Christopher Commission did their work after Rodney King, that yes. was their finding. Their clear finding was not that it's systemic racism throughout the, the police department and they need a bunch of training and all this stuff and you need to change the hearts and minds of a bunch of people. That's hard to do. What they found was something very easy to do. If you have officers in your rank that have high levels of aggressive behavior towards the public, get them out. That's the basic story. They should not be policing. They're just like not every person is, is cut out to be a nurse or every person is cut out to be a hostess. Every person is not cut out to be a police officer. And no system is 100% correct. There's no way you could screen for all the people that have no business being a police officer. The problem is, I don't know how good the screen is up front, but I can tell you the part of just getting rid of people is severely broken. That's broken. They don't, they get enough data that have told them this officer, I mean, this is what I mean by some things are perfectly aligned by a deity. How perfect is it to have this person have 18 violations on their file? It's just appalling. It, 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 it is exactly what tells you what is wrong with policing. Even though they were told that that's what should not exist, 30 years later, it still exists. Mm-hmm. And that's why George Floyd is dead. If someone in Minneapolis had enacted a policy, as the Christopher Commission said 27 years ago, you know, almost 30 years ago, 
George Floyd would be alive today. That's just mm-hmm. a simple fact. It's a fact. It's not, you don't have to come up with some fantasy land. And all that is, is if someone, if I were making widgets and uh, let's say 10% of my, the, the, the fault rate is 5%. They don't, they don't want to have a fault rate more than 5%. And I am, um, I have a fault rate of 20% of the widgets I make. I'm going to be fired. They're not going to say most of the time I make proper widgets, which is a true statement. They wouldn't do that. They would just get fired. Hmm. That is why are these people not? And we know one of the, the reasons the, the police, the, 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 um, the, the, the police commission and the belief that these people are heroes. And that gives cover hmm. for a lot of stuff. Hmm. That's my big long talk. There's one other thing <clears throat> that you mentioned that I quickly wanted to was the thing around unity. And I said okay. this before, I'll say this again. Um, too often unity is used as a battering ram to get people to all believe the same thing. That's what unity means. When, when Colin Kaepernick was started to, to protest and kneel, unity, it was used a million times. He's, we're a country of unity and we all stand and put our hands on our heart when the, the national anthem is played and the, and the flag is up. And he's breaking from the unity and is on his knee. That was the, the typical thing you heard, right? And it was used as unity. Unity was the thing that said he was doing something wrong. As opposed to flipping it and saying, unity should mean that if one part of the whole hurts, all of the whole should hurt. If my finger right. hurts, mm-hmm. the rest mm-hmm. of my body knows it. The rest of my body's not sitting there going, finger, you take care of that and we'll keep it isolated. But so when he's kneeling, the rest of the body should be going, okay, what's, what's hurting him that causes him to do something different than what we're doing? That's a way different view of unity, but that's the kind of view of unity that allows majority to actually take care of minority or at least understand minority. You know, it's so interesting because I, that, that's what I assumed the definition of unity was and the mm-hmm. fact that people would misuse the term in order to promote their agenda does not surprise me. Can mm-hmm. I go back yeah. a little bit? I'm going to just like rewind sure. a little bit. You know, you know, not only have the, these horrible things been hiding within the police system, but I think prior – to Trump and the white man's way of looking at things, we didn't really realize how very insidious this mindset is that it was so powerful that it would get a man like Trump elected. And I remember the first week uh, Trump was in office, or not in office, but was elected, uh, the white people being just like, how can this happen? This is horrible. This is just unbelievable. And the response from some members of the black community is, white people, this has been happening to black people all along. <laughs> and you're just suddenly mm-hmm. thinking about the unfair. And I, I, I have never forgotten that moment where I realized how relevant that discrepancy was, uh, that, that Trump has brought out in the open these types of violent and racist attitudes and given them license and Second Amendment permission 
to be violent whenever his sensibilities or racist sensibilities are violated. And um, I, I, I would go further. Yeah, please. I would go further that um, I remember leading up to the election, um, the amount of black people that were saying, like black and out, like Ben on St. Jones or whatever was one of them who said, there's a very good chance he's going to get elected. And yeah, the reason terrifying. he was saying it, the reason he was saying it is the same thing. So it's different. It's a little bit different than what you were saying. And this in the sense that he was saying what a lot of black people have thought that after Barack Obama, there was going to be this backlash mm. about having a black person as president. Mm-hmm. And that while that the group that would have that is not the entire country, it's no. a larger segment, especially with the way our electoral process works with electoral college. It's a large enough segment, segment that unless the rest of the others are really united, this man will, someone like him will get elected. So people were saying that. There were people like Cornell West and other people were saying things like that before right. Trump became that person even. Even before mm-hmm. it, was, it was actually Trump running, they were saying that that's what you're seeing in the white community. And when mm-hmm. it became Trump and he started to gain steam playing on that same, those same messages, that's when they said, you guys don't realize the power of this because you guys don't realize what the real America looks like. You don't realize the real sensibilities that many white people bring to the table when they look at America. Okay, 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 okay Eden. I'm sorry, but <laughs> uh, I, I, I just want you to know you've been using the language of white people and many white mm-hmm. people, and mm-hmm. you've been making it uh, a, a bigger than 51% majority. And no. I just, well, no. you know, when you say, wait, 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 let's just have this dialogue out because as soon as I hear, oh, there's some paper stuff being rustled around, by the way. Okay. Yeah. As soon as I hear uh, many white people or white people, like well, the white people, I realize that I want to say, wait a minute, that's not me. <laughs> I want to, and I know that there are many white people to say, wait a minute, that's not me because there has to be a distinction in my mind between white people who are bigoted versus white people who are not. There's got to be this distinction somewhere in the consciousness of all of this. And am I being defensive? Am I putting out a, a insensitivity? Am I being a, uh, using a, 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 a blind uh, microaggression that I don't understand? I'd like to hear your response to that. I would say that um, your response is a, is very typical. <laughs> uh, have you read the book, Have you read the book White for, for, um, uh, Fragility? It's an excellent book. It's on my it, list. It's written by a white woman. Yes. And um, and it's great because it addresses exactly what you're talking about. Right. And what I like about it, and, I, and, I, and I've told other black people, I said, hey, when you hear that, send them to this book. Because I know you get tired of trying to explain this to your white friends. That, 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 that the fact, when I start telling you about things that white people do, the fact that you start to tell me that, oh, but I don't do that, and I don't do that, or that's not who I am, misses the point. Because, tell me, tell me because the, language, uh, the language becomes really important. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, uh, yes, because the people who are committing these acts are white. That's all I'm saying. 
I'm not saying it's part of a white power structure. I'm not saying every white person is. Of course, I tell you, I have white friends. I have very good friends that are white. So, so it, 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 it's, it's, I'm not saying that this is something that every white person feels. We all, we all know as black folks, if we're going to get things done, we need white allies. We know, we know that. Uh, mm-hmm. But we need white allies, I mean, allies that have their eyes open and recognize this is a white establishment problem. It is. There's nobody else. That's who is, that's where this comes from. And so if you are not that person, but yet you don't, every chance you get, call it out when you see it, well, they're part of the problem. Hmm. You might not be the person effectuating it, but you're part of the problem. Because well, this is that's a, a, a system this is, that doesn't. <laughs> this is tough to digest, but I guess it's mm-hmm. a little bit okay. I'm just going to put an equal equalizer here. Let's just see mm-hmm. what you think of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, as a as a woman, mm-hmm. I see a lot of patriarchal attitudes, and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and I grew up prior and during and after ERA, and of course the hashtag Me Too movement, very pertinent, et cetera, et cetera. The Weinstein and you know, attitudes, so for excuse me, but Bill Cosby as well. I mean, it's like the white woman, the black woman, a woman has had to deal with male supremacy and, uh, and women being second-class citizens and women got the vote uh, after black men got the vote in the United States mm-hmm. of America. So there's like, there, so I can sit there and say men and I could talk about men in a collective and how men do this and how men do that. But nonetheless, I feel like I am in error doing that i would have to say the men that don't respect women versus men as a collective because i know so many amazing men who are very respectful and do not espouse to any of the attitudes that those men would espouse to so if i make that distinguished distinction in my language and talking about men why not and make that distinction in your language in talking about white people? I'm glad you gave that example. Thank you. I will tell you, <laughs> I have never, ever felt the need to say to a woman who is talking about what men do, but that's not me. And why don't you qualify it? For, I've, never, I've never had that. So it's funny. I've never even thought of it till you, till you were speaking. Mm-hmm. I've I'm, had men say it to me. Ne- I, I, I but I but I never have. I've never felt the need to say, oh, oh, but I hope you're not talking about me, or I don't feel that way, or you know, I don't do that. I've never because all I <laughs> ever not? think to myself is, I think to myself, I don't do it, so I don't need to state that. I know why she's saying that. She's saying that because that's her experience. About I don't you need, men? No, I I don't know. I I'm I, a number of men. <laughs> she no. Her experience is based on not the few men. Her experience is based on a, a, pet, a, a system that makes those few men able to do what they do. That's what people need to understand. The system is a system that allows men to do that. As a system of men allowing men. If I, as a man, could say... I've searched the world, and I've stopped every single man who has tried to do something harmful against a woman, then that'd be the only way I could think I have the right to stand up and say I'm not one of them. 
But as long as that's not the case, which will never be the case, I have to look and go, no, that is the system in which I'm a part of. I get benefit from it, and they get, and they get uh, put under the shoe for it. My, I have a daughter, and I'm pointing out to my daughter all the time. You see what was, what was embedded in that? It was an embed, they embedded in that the assumption the person has to be a man. You see that? They embedded in that the assumption it needs to be a woman. Hmm. I'm, I'm pointing that out to my daughter all the time so that she hmm. does not fall into the trap of thinking she's less than on two fronts. On two fronts, I have to do it for her. And so mm-hmm. I have no problem with someone talking about what men do and not qualifying it for me at all. Not at all. Because I understand that's the power structure. And white people need to grow up to know that's the case. That's reality. That's the power structure. And, and you don't need to feel offended if it's not you. If you don't do that act, then ask yourself the next question. What do I do to make sure those that do the act get punished or somehow corrected? Somehow corrected? What, what is my action that I do around that? And if you're 100% on that, then maybe you can feel more vindicated about saying it's not me. But since I know very few people who pass the second test, I go, yeah. That's why I'm saying white people, and I'm not saying a small minority of them. Hmm. Or even majority of them. Okay, so let me just see if I can translate this. So you are suggesting that it is the system of white white men or system of men that allows – some men to get away with things and in, 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 against women. You're saying it's right. a system of white privilege that allows white men and women to get away with doing things against people of color. Right. Okay. So it's a system. Okay. So right. that's and, and where the idea of a, white privilege white comes in. That's exactly right. It's a white okay. privilege system. It's just like it's a male privileged system. I mean, I, I was seeing a bit, and I wanted to research more on this, that the, the crazy notion that I'm hearing now, that, <clears throat> that women whose children are abused, tougher sentences than the man who did the abuse. Yes. How insane is that? If that doesn't tell you there is a mm-hmm. system-wide mm-hmm. failure, what else do you need? She mm-hmm. was an enabler because this person was able to, and because our system decides she's the nurturer and she should, that's what's going on. She's the nurturer and supposed to protect the child. Therefore, she's more culpable than the man who actually did the damage to the child. How mm-hmm. insane is that? Mm-hmm. That. I love the dialogue that we have, Eden. We shall continue yes. it on to our next time that we have a chance to talk maybe maybe perhaps more than seven days will pass and maybe these seven days ahead will mm-hmm. continue to evolve so that we can right. change the the system from representing only one i don't know can we have a system that represents the all it's going to take big thinking and big people to make right. that happen maybe can we're I, part of the dialogue one- Right. Can oh, I say yes. one quick parting thing, which is, uh, and I mentioned this before, and I think it's a real important thing for people in America to understand. America, is, its greatness has been that it takes people from all over the world and it put them within a system 
of freedom and, and ideals. Mm-hmm. Right? People come here yeah. for our ideals. And because of those ideals is the reason why people come here and make America as strong as it is. We live on the backs of cultures all around the world, like, yeah, no, other country, like, like no other country in the world. And the reason for that is because of the beacon that we shine. So anything we do that detracts from that beacon detracts from our ability to be great, never mind all the immigration stuff. That's just another layer on top of it. Oh, but, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, so, so that's defeating America as a whole of where yes. Americans want to go. Now, we are in a process of change where we're going from a, a white-dominated, white-majority society to a minority-dominated society. Yeah, it's no and, longer minority. Mm-hmm. Right. And the possibility of that becoming leadership. That yes. scares many white people to death. And, yeah. and, and Barack Obama was the personification of that, where we uh, become multicultural society. Yes. No other country has ever done it before. And we are on the path to do it. So we need to understand it's not going to be easy, no matter what. It's mm-hmm. just If the trend line goes up, we need to understand that with a Barack Obama, you're going to have a Trump. It's going to, you're going to have these countervailing things, and hopefully there's a trend line in there that keeps moving us along. But part of it it has to be that white people, and I do mean this in a broad sense, need to feel comfortable that on the other side, they will be okay. Hmm. The more they feel that comfort, the less rocky this transition will be. The reason why Nelson Mandela could come out and there'd be an orderly transfer of power in South Africa is because white people in South Africa trusted Nelson Mandela, which is ironic, right? Someone who was a terrorist when he went in now Mm -hmm. have built so much capital that white people believe he wouldn't just take all their land away and take all their wealth away. And that's Mm -hmm. why there was orderly transfer of power. Mm-hmm. White people in the United States need to understand on this journey towards a multicultural society that they will not have people having their knees on their necks on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in part I say I think people's fears along those lines may be indicative of a recognition that maybe there's a karma mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, karma pay. We did it to them. They do it to us. And for some people's consciousness, I'm not owning that consciousness, by the way. Right. No, no, I know you're not. I know you're not. <laughs> I'd be shocked if you did. <laughs> oh, and with and, that, and we do okay. need to end. Thank you so right. much for your time, your insight, your mm-hmm. honesty, your passion, and your Thank clarity. You. Take care, everybody. Listen that. carefully. Bye-bye. Bye, all.